like to invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, be looking at verses 26 through 40. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 917. Our sermon title is To the Ends of the Earth. The key words for our worshipers in training are Gentile, eunuch, and faith. Victimization, marginalization, outsiderness. These are concepts that have been with humanity ever since the fall. And today, especially in the West, they are terms thrown around like bricks in our cultural conversation that is by many accounts tearing our country apart. Today it seems so many are vying for the top spot in the most marginalized group. The more oppressed you can prove that you are, and you and your ilk, you either are or at least have been, the more credit you have, the more clout, the more valuable you are. Now I don't think this scramble to the top of Mount Victim is particularly A good thing. I don't think it's a good development in our society. I do think it's important that we remember that the Bible actually does speak to those who are truly outside. Those who, for one reason or another, have really been pushed to the fringes of society. It speaks about the outsider and to the outsider. The text before us in Acts 8 in many ways is really all about marginalization and a message of hope that is found only in the gospel for those who find themselves, for one reason or another, on the outs. I think it speaks a fitting word to us, either because perhaps you have felt this way in your own life for different reasons, or simply, maybe just culturally as Christians, we will find ourselves in this category more and more. So before we look at these verses, let me set the scene. Most of you are probably familiar with the basic gist of the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And he's writing to a man named Theophilus. In Acts 1.1, he writes that in his previous book, Luke, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The import of this statement is that it tells us also why he wrote Acts. If he wrote the book of Luke to tell us what Jesus had began to do, the book of Acts tells us what he continues to do. But the focus shifts from the person of Jesus and his earthly ministry in Luke to the person of the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit, his Holy Spirit, through the ministry of his disciples in Acts. If the Gospel of Luke describes the Spirit's empowerment of Christ's earthly ministry, Acts describes the Spirit's empowerment of Christ's disciples' ministries. These two books, these two volumes together, Luke uh, and Acts, they are both uh, history, literature, and theology. Luke's purpose in writing these two volumes to teach what Jesus has done and then sort of the therefore of that is that the gospel of Christ is meant for the Gentiles as well as 
the Jews. It unites Jews and Gentiles together as one spiritual people, and God is determined to build his church through the preaching of the gospel as it moves out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. If you were to search for a thesis statement for the book of Acts, you could find it in chapter 1, verse 8. There, Jesus tells his disciples just before his ascension into heaven that they would soon receive power from the Holy Spirit and they would then be his witnesses beginning there in Jerusalem and then out in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and then even unto the ends of the earth. And from that point on in the book of Acts, Luke is demonstrating the fulfillment of that statement. Really, in uh, chapters 1 through 7, we see Christ's disciples witness in Jerusalem. But then in chapter 7, uh, Stephen is murdered. And after his stoning, we read that in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The apostles, however, remained in Jerusalem at the time, but the rest of the disciples were scattered abroad in the surrounding regions. In that, those same three verses, we're introduced to a murderous Pharisee named Saul. And then in chapter 9, we read of Saul's conversion to Christ, where he's renamed Paul and commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. So in chapters 1 to 7, we have the ministry to Jerusalem. We have chapters 9 and following the ministry to the Gentiles, the the ends of the earth. And here, right here in chapter 8, we have a bridge. We have this transition from this ministry of the twelve focused in Jerusalem in chapters 1 to 7 to the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth in chapters 9 to the end. The first part of chapter 8, verses 4 to 25, focuses on the ministry in Samaria, as Jesus said. Philip had gone to Samaria. He was proclaiming Christ to them. And so we see that Christ's word is being fulfilled in his disciples. His followers were bearing witness in Jerusalem and now in Judea and Samaria. And then as we see in our passage before us, the transition continues to the ends of the earth. But Luke isn't just telling us in this passage that it's for the Gentiles. It's not just a gospel for the Gentiles, but it's, it's for those who have been marginalized, who have been victimized. Here, specifically, either because of ethnicity or social status. It's not just a gospel for the well-to-do, but it's for those who previously had been on the outside. So let's read these passages to see how Luke is convincing us of this truth. Acts 8, beginning verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. 
And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. There are three observations I'd like to make from these verses, which uh, all uh, will serve to drive home this, this main idea that God welcomes the outsider. If there's one thing to walk away with this morning, it's that God welcomes the outsider. We see first, in verses 26 through 29, as well as verse 39 and 40, we see that God sovereignly works by His Spirit to bring about His own appointed ends. Second, in verses 30 to 35, we see that God's Word is essential in bringing people into the faith. People, bringing people into the new covenant And third, verses 36 to 38, we see that neither ethnicity nor social status or any other human identifying marker are legitimate barriers to keep someone out of the kingdom of God. So first, verses 29 to 26, and we'll look also at 39 and 40. We see God is at work to bring about the fulfillment of His own appointed ends. Specifically, in this case, Jesus' words in Acts 1.8. Three different times in this passage, we see that the Lord directly communicated with or acted upon Philip to bring about this uh, end uh, at the end, this encounter and other gospel encounters at the end. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord tells Philip to go toward Gaza. But then on the way down, Philip sees the Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit then tells Philip to go and join the chariot. And then after this, uh, their conversation and the baptism of the eunuch, the Spirit seemingly miraculously whisked Philip away to Azotus so that he might preach the gospel to all the towns as he went on his way to Caesarea. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about Philip's obedience to the Lord here, and I don't want to take away from that, but I want to begin where the text is. God engages Philip. 
God leads and directs Philip. Now, we do need to remember the context in which all of this happens. These events in Acts 8 are occurring at a very specific and pivotal point in redemptive history. The makeup of God's people is transitioning from being a supermajority of ethnic Israelites to now include large numbers of Gentiles from all over the world. And so because this is such a transitional time in redemptive history, the specifics of how God works here in Acts 8 will likely differ from how we should expect them to work in our lives. Right? We, we, we get the sense of reading this, that there's some audible communication taking place here, that the Lord is directly, um, immediately talking to Philip. And so while, for reasons we'll discuss in a bit, we don't need to quite expect that in our lives, the basic principle carries across these redemptive historical lines. God's Spirit is the primary worker in all things that come to pass. Think about us for a moment. Think about yourselves. Are you here by accident this morning? God has brought us here, brought us together this day for a very specific purpose. For some of us, perhaps, we're here longing to be refreshed as we rest from our labors and bask once more in the glory of the immortal God with His people on His day. For others, perhaps, we're here today and we are hurting. We're anxious. We're worried. We're sorrowful. We're in pain. Something is wrong. Maybe you know what it is and maybe you don't. But you're here today and you know that you need help. You're weary, hungry, maybe at the end of your rope. Friend, you're not here by accident. Or perhaps you're here and you feel guilty. You are weighed down with sin. Maybe you're ashamed. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against neighbor whom you're called to love as yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and you can barely lift your gaze from the floor. Well, hear this. You're not here by accident. Or maybe you're here and you don't really think you need to be. You're not particularly grateful to be here seeking the blessing or comfort of God. You're not afraid to be here fearing His judgment, unsure whether He'll really forgive you. No, maybe you strolled in here this morning angry at God, completely dismissive of Him altogether, with no fear and trembling at all. You're not here by accident either. God has been working in all our lives. Perhaps for someone here today, your whole life has been leading to this moment. Every decision you've ever made has brought you here now. Every left turn, every time you left five minutes late or ten minutes early, every second helping at dinner, every time you've made yourself throw up after eating, every curse word, every attempt to find satisfaction against the blue light of a computer screen under the shade of night, every friendly gesture, every fight, every sneeze, every lie, every truth, Everything has brought you here now. 
and for what? I pray that we wouldn't waste this moment. We wouldn't waste this day, but we would encounter God here in His Word. We're not here by accident. We don't know how many more moments we will have. So if you're here at enmity with God, would you lay down your weapons? Would you seek refuge in the God who made you? And the God who sent His Son to bear the guilt and punishment deserved by sinners like you and like me? Would you be free from self and would you live unto God? Pray that you would trust in the Lord Jesus and find the rest that your soul craves. Are you tired? Jesus is rest. Are you sick? Jesus is health. Are you condemned? Jesus is freedom. And he's brought you here and he offers himself to you right now. Take him, he's yours. Believer, take Him again now this morning and enjoy the benefits of your union with Christ who loved you you and gave Himself for you. If you don't know Christ, would you have Him for the first time? I pray that you would. So God sovereignly works by His Spirit. We see it in Philip that He leads and directs him into this, this conversation with this eunuch. And he works in our lives, and he brought us here into this conversation with with him through his word. So that's our first setting. God sovereignly works in our lives by his spirit. Second, verses 30 to 35. God works to bring about his purposes through us primarily by means of his word. Notice that even with all the miraculous working that God does here in this passage, look what he actually uses to sharpen the understanding of the eunuch and bring him into the new covenant. His word. The eunuch was reading Isaiah and Philip explained to him, beginning with that scripture in Isaiah 53, 7, and 8, he explained to him from that scripture the good news about Jesus. Philip did not tell him to search for a sign from heaven, to listen for a small, still voice, or a massive thunderclap. He didn't tell him to wait for a liver shiver or consult his magic eight ball. He took him to God's Word for understanding. If Philip used Scripture to teach the eunuch, how much more ought we to do so? We learn in Hebrews 1 that God's ways of communicating with the prophets and the apostles differs from the way He communicates with His church now that the full revelation of Scripture has been revealed. With the revelation of Jesus Christ and the subsequent closing of the canon after the death of the apostles, God's promised mode of communication is through that very Word made flesh, now inscripturated in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. This is why, as I said, we shouldn't expect God to uh, give us an, an audible voice from heaven or a visible, you know, some vision and tell us what to do or to transport us miraculously from one place, ministry to another for specific ministry. Now that God is no longer adding to his special revelation, the kind of divine communication where God directly 
often audibly and visibly speaks with his prophets. It's now over. God has spoken in his Son, and we have the full revelation of that word in our Bibles, and we can trust God still by His Spirit, working in conjunction with that inscripturated Word, we can trust God to lead, guide, direct, and rule us. Have you ever, for yourself, or perhaps for uh, a friend or a loved one, wished that God would do something miraculous that you might believe or that He or she might believe? Jesus tells us a parable about the or story about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And we learn that the rich man's brothers, Jesus says who, uh, through really the mouth of Abraham in the story, who have uh, Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to that word, they won't listen if a man were to rise from the dead. That is a high premium placed on God's word. That passage in Luke 16, or this passage in Acts 8, They speak volumes, not just about God's inscripturated word in general, but about our Old Testaments in particular. We will learn from Luke that Moses and the prophets were sufficient for the rich man's brothers to believe. We see here in Acts 8 that from Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8, that Philip teaches the Ethiopian the good news about Jesus. Obviously, as the New Covenant Church, the New Testament is indispensable to our faith. But so is the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you, we would make full use of God's Word. So we see, secondly, that there's great, a great importance of trusting in God's Word as He uses that revelation to bring His people into His kingdom. Well, look with me in the third place, verses 36 to 38, where we see that ethnicity and social status are not sufficient barriers to keep us out of the kingdom of God. And this is really where all of this is heading. It's all coming to this point here. Immediately after hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, the eunuch responds in faith, and he asks to be baptized. Now, it's important to remember, the Ethiopian eunuch was already an actual follower of Yahweh, as permitted under the Old Covenant system. But now, after coming, the coming of Christ, the fullness of the gospel has been made clear. He's brought into full membership with the people of God under the New Covenant through the teaching and baptism of Philip. You see, under the Old Covenant... Eunuchs were not permitted full access into the people of God. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, explicitly prohibits eunuchs eunuchs from entering the assembly of the Lord. Laws concerning foreigners, like an Ethiopian, were, while welcoming, still strict and would have required this Ethiopian to completely abandon his cultural heritage and become a cultural Jew, in order to be numbered among God's covenant people. And for this Ethiopian in particular, since he was also a eunuch, he would have been unable to undergo the most important Jewish rite of all, circumcision. He was an outsider by nearly every definition of the word. 
He was a Gentile. He was a eunuch. And yet we see in this story that God welcomes him. God welcomes the outsider. Even the outsider for whom the law previously made no provision. He sees the water and he simply asks, What keeps me from being baptized? And that would have, in the Old Covenant, been a very loaded question. What keeps me from being brought into the people of God? Nearly everything. But now, in the gospel of Christ, Philip answers, nothing, my friend. And they exit the chariot, and he baptizes him. The message, therefore, is that no matter one's social or ethnic background, the good news of Jesus Christ is for us all. It is a message of hope, not just for the well-positioned in life, but for those with their backs against the wall. The gospel message is for Jew and Gentile, for rich and poor, for black and white and every other ethnicity in the world, government worker and civilian, it's for the healthy, it's for the sick. The gospel is for all. The gospel is for each and every one of us here this morning. The message is this, Christ for you. Will you have him. The story of the baptism and welcome of God of this Ethiopian eunuch into the New Covenant people really does intersect with, with our story in some very powerful ways. The message, again, is that those who have been marginalized, particularly because of ethnicity or social status, but it really could apply to any number of reasons, those people marginalized, they have, through the message of, a cro- of the cross, a place of welcome and acceptance in the Lord Jesus and His body, His bride, the church. Despite the Ethiopian eunuch's outsiderness, he has been welcomed into the family of God through faith. This truth should speak a joyful word of encouragement to us all. Whether you feel marginalized by your parents, your siblings, your friends, your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your employers, your employees, or society at large, the eunuch's baptism offers a great message of hope for you. He, like you, would have felt like he didn't belong. Yet unlike you, There were outright commands under the Old Covenant law that prohibited his full participation with the people of God. Just see Deuteronomy 23.1. Remember, he did what he could. He went down to Jerusalem to worship. He was reading Scripture, seeking to understand it. But here, in the context of redemptive history, he did not yet know and understand about Christ like many of the Jews at the time. And so this Gentile gets brought in as he comes to understand better who God is and what he's done for him in the person of Christ. And he's baptized. So whatever your story, 
You fit well within this narrative that we find running through the story of redemption. God welcomes the outsider. And if you've never particularly felt marginalized, if you've never felt outside, you've always been inside, what message does it say to you about how you might, in gospel love, welcome the outsider? You see, this theme isn't just found here. This theme that the good news of Jesus continues to be received by those marginalized for any number of reasons. It can be traced all throughout Scripture. The Bible is full of stories of redemption and hope for those who have been cast aside. We read in Genesis 12 that God chose Abraham, a moon worshiper from Chaldea, to be the father of faith for his people. Or consider Rahab in Joshua. And Ruth from the book with the same name. If God would have mercy on Ruth, a Moabite, and Rahab, a prostitute, and he would use them to continue the messianic line, God can show mercy to you as well, right? Or what about David's kindness to Saul's grandson in 2 Samuel 9? When David welcomes Mephibosheth to his table, the crippled grandson of his arch enemy, we see God's willingness to welcome those who likewise are simply made of the wrong stuff. Or consider the passage that this eunuch was reading in Acts 8. He was reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 and 53, uh, that passage is perhaps the greatest Old Testament picture of the coming Messiah and the suffering that he would endure for his people. I actually want to, uh, to look there for just a moment. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, um, and, and following. I really want to highlight the significance and the relevance of this passage for this man in particular. So in Isaiah 53, we see that the, that the Messiah would, would suffer and redeem and ransom a people for himself. And make intercession for the transgressors. That's how verse 12 ends. But then in uh, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 54, we find that it applies not just as you might have expected to Jews, but to the ends of the earth. Verse 3, you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and the and will people the desolate cities. It's not just Jerusalem, but it's to the ends of the earth. But then if you keep going over into chapter 56, the joy that would have been brimming in the Ethiopian's heart in chapters 52, 53, 54 would have likely exploded in Isaiah 56. We see in this chapter that through faith, the eunuch receives an inheritance and a name better than son. Isaiah 56, 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. 
I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Perhaps it was at this point in the journey they got to Isaiah 56 and he hears this and the eunuch says, Look, water, what keeps me then from being baptized? The story continues into the New Testament. Jesus in His earthly ministry, He ate and He drank with sinners and put His hands on those who were sick and contagious. In these scenes, Jesus touches and is touched by people who would have been considered untouchables. And he died to ransom for himself a bride made up of all different kinds of people. Some easily understood, some not so easily understood. Some well-liked, some very difficult to like. And whoever you find yourself to be, you can know this. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, you find someone who completely understands you. He knows that you are His. And He doesn't just know you in His capacity as the omniscient, eternal God, but as the high priest who is tempted in every way that you are, that He might sympathize with us and understand our weaknesses. And brothers and sisters, Though your fellow churchmen were not perfect, God has saved you and brought you into a community of believers as He did this eunuch. Because you see, upon hearing the clear message of the Gospel from the prophet Isaiah as taught him by Philip, the eunuch immediately responded with faith, seeking baptism as the first step of obedience. The truth is, the road ahead isn't easy. But you will find that if you trust the Lord, follow Him in obedience, you will find that you have all the acceptance that you ever need. And you'll find, as Abraham, Rahab, Ruth, Mephibosheth, and countless others found, there is always a place for you at the king's table.